We're going to have a little bit of a one-off sermon this morning. We'll be in John chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, grab John chapter 15. If you're a guest with us and you don't have a Bible, there should be Bibles in the pew back somewhere near you. If there's not, just thump the ear of the person in front of you and see if they can't grab one for you. If you're unfamiliar with handling a Bible, a Bible is broken up really into two parts, an Old Testament and a New Testament. The Old Testament takes up about two-thirds of the Bible. The New Testament takes up a third. We're going to be in the New Testament this morning, in the Gospel of John. That would be the fourth book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And as you make your way there, you'll notice that there are some big numbers and some small numbers. So if you are handling a Bible for the first time, or perhaps the first time in a long time, I just remind you that those big numbers are the chapters, the small numbers are the verses. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Beginning in verse 1, we're going to go all the way through verse 11. But before we read our text this morning, I want to pose a question that many of you pose often in your own lives, and that is just simply, how do I deepen my relationship with God? With everything that I have going on in my life, all of my responsibilities, all of the things that I'm busy with, Sometimes it feels even like I'm drowning. I have limited time, limited mental bandwidth, limited emotional bandwidth. How is it that in the midst of life and responsibilities and coming and going and doing, can I deepen my relationship with God? At least I hope that's a question that you ask often. I think it's a question that we ask often in a number of our own relationships, isn't it? For those of us who are married here, we ask often, how can I deepen my relationship with my spouse? How can we grow in love and affection for one another? That should be a common question in our marriages. For those of you here who are single, and you catch the eye of a guy or a girl that you've been interested in, well, then you should naturally be thinking, how can I know this person more? How can I deepen my relationship with this person in such a way that I might not only come to know them, but perhaps see my affections grow for them. Deepening relationships is part of what we have been created for. We have been created for communion. Communion with others and, above all, communion with God. John chapter 15 is all about communion. It's about fellowship with God in Christ. Now, this is a little bit different. So, let me just pause for a moment, make sure that, that I'm filling in our vocabulary words, because all of us may not be using the same words. There is a difference between union with Christ and what the old theologians would call communion with Christ. Here's what I mean. Union with Christ is this. That when a sinner who is dead in their trespasses and sins comes by God's grace to repent and believe in the gospel, they are, by the power of the Spirit, united to Christ. That all that is His now becomes theirs. That's what you see at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That when we are united to Christ, our sin has been imputed to Him on the cross. It has been paid for, but His life now becomes ours we go from being dead in our sins to being alive with Him. We are regenerated. 
Not only that, but his righteousness, his perfect obedience to the will of the Father as expressed in his law. That is imputed to us, credited to our account. That he becomes our righteousness, that is that we are justified in him. Declared righteous in him. But not only that, we share in his power whereby he has broken the power of sin over us. So now, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now able to give ourselves over to God in love and of obedience to his word. That Christ is our sanctification. All of these glorious benefits of the gospel, regeneration, justification, sanctification, in the very end, glorification, all of these things find their source ultimately in Christ. And the delight of the Christian life is not ultimately the benefits of the gospel. The delight of the Christian life is the object of the gospel, the source of those benefits, and that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. He is the hub whereby all of the spokes go out. He's at the very heart. He is at the very center. And so to be a gospel-centered church is by necessity to be a Christ-centered church because Christ is at the heart of the gospel. And when we talk about Christ being at the heart of the gospel, then we cannot escape the spiritual reality of being united to him. That's union with Christ. Union with Christ is unchanging. Once you're united, you cannot be divided from him. He will, as he says elsewhere, all that the Father gives me, I will not lose one. They're mine. As a husband is with his bride, it is a covenant he will never break, even in spite of her unfaithfulness. It is unchanging. It is static. But union with Christ is different from communion with Christ. Whereas union with Christ is unchanging and static, communion with Christ is always changing, and is dynamic. It's something that we grow into. It's something that deepens. It's something that widens. It's something that increases. Increases joy and increases effectiveness in the Christian life. That's what we're going to see in John chapter 15. That to know Christ and to hear from Him in His Word and to speak to him through prayer, and to enjoy sweet reliance on him, and to grow in knowledge and affection, that is communion with Christ. John Owen wrote a book called Communion with God. I set it down somewhere. Nona, that's my mother-in-law. We just call her Nona. That white book at the end. Will you hold that? I want everybody to see that white book at the end of the pew. I accidentally, I forgot to bring it up here. But just hold it up so everybody can see how big and fat it is. John Owen wrote this book, Communion with God. And it's a really hard book. One of his biographers said that John Owen writes like an, with all the grace of an elephant stomping through the forest. And that's right. It is a tough read. But if any of you are interested in a really big read and a really tough read, you're like, I'm not one of those who like sissy reads. I want a big read. Well, let me come into you, John Owen's communion with God, because in it, he thinks about something that you and I never think about. 
that we have direct communion, all, all of us who have been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the gospel, we have direct communion with each person of the Trinity. This is how he organizes his whole treatise. That we have communion with the Father as love, we have communion with the Son as grace, and we have communion with the Spirit as comfort. It is a triune communion, a communion with the God who is three persons and yet one, who is one true God and yet three persons. And yet when you get through all of these pages, at the heart of it, what you find underneath all these words is this idea that communion consists of mutual relationships. That you go back and forth you listen and you learn and you grow in knowledge and affection and holiness and joy. This is the big idea of our text this morning. If you're taking notes, this is essentially my sermon in a sentence. That we grow in joy when we grow in holiness. And we grow in holiness by abiding in Christ. We grow in joy when we grow in holiness, and we grow in holiness by abiding in Christ. So you should have your Bibles open. John chapter 15. Read verses 1 through 11 with me. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Well, these things I have spoken to you, that your joy my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. It is true, it has been inspired by God, and it is without error. May he write it on our hearts so that we would walk in it to his glory. We're going to see three things, good Baptist sermon, not three points, three points in our 11 verses here. First of all, we're going to see in verses 1 through 6 that we grow by abiding in Christ. We grow by abiding in Christ. That's verses 1 through 6. And then in verses 7 through 10, we're going to see that we abide in Christ when his word abides in us. 
We abide in Christ when his word abides in us. Verse 11, we abide in Christ to get his joy. That's the third point. We abide in Christ to get his joy. In case you're somewhat of a slow rider, you're left-handed. Let me repeat that. We grow by abiding in Christ. We abide in Christ when his word abides in us. We abide in Christ to get his joy. Those are our three points this morning. Well, let's consider that first point in verses 1 through 6. We grow by abiding in Christ. And here in verse 1, Jesus is going to say something scandalous. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. He is hearkening back, pulling from Old Testament language. Psalm chapter 80, Isaiah 5, Ezekiel 15, and all of these and more passages, Israel is referred to as a vine or a vineyard. And God, who has redeemed Israel from captivity in Egypt, is the one who has redeemed her, planted her, and is seeking to cause her to grow. And so we see this picture of God as digging and tilling and planting in these various passages. Only the problem is, is throughout the Old Testament, Israel produced no good fruit. In fact, we read that Israel produced only sour grapes, grapes that were bitter. Because rather than be devoted to the God that redeemed her, she continued to chase idols, rely on her own wisdom, not the wisdom of God. And so they were, as God says in Ezekiel 15, they were useless. That Israel was good, he uses the analogy in Ezekiel 15, that, that Israel in their disobedience was useless. They are good only for fire. Well, you can see Jesus is drawing from all of this language. Well, here in verse 1, when Jesus says, I am the true vine... What he's saying is, I am the one that fulfills Israel's destiny. That I am the one that is faithful in every way that Israel was, was faithless. And because I have been faithful in every way that Israel was faithless, I am able now to do for the vine what the law, which was given to Israel, could never do for the vine, and that is give life and produce fruit. That it's an altogether different spiritual reality what God is bringing about in this true vine. And so in a sense, Israel was a vine that was pointing to, was kind of a three-dimensional prophecy of the true vine yet to come. The one who himself would come from Israel. That he would be the one that is the one true vine. And the God who, who digs and tills and plants in Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5 and Ezekiel 15. Well, he says here that he is my father. The vine dresser that you see over Israel in the Old Testament. He is the one who is working in and through me to produce life. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. You can imagine with scribes and Pharisees listening on, who exalted in their own obedience to their interpretation of the law and, and the traditions of the elders and of, and of the nation of Israel's special place in the redemptive plan of God, how scandalous this would have been. That Jesus is saying that I'm the one who fulfills Israel's destiny. 
I am the true vine. I am the true Israel. We're going to find out as are every single man and woman from every tribe, tongue, and nation who's united to me. This is the true Israel. But then he goes on and he, and he describes how this analogy works. Teases it out beginning in verse 2. Every branch in me, he says, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, well, he prunes it so that it would bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Just a couple of questions that arise out of these handful of verses. First of all, what is the fruit that he's talking about? Some people have assumed that the fruit that he's talking about is evangelism, and I think that's false. The fruit that he's talking about should be thought of in the same way that we just studied in Galatians chapter 5. It's not evangelism, it's godliness. It's God-likeness. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's spiritual fruit. Put your fingers there in John chapter 15. Let me see if I can tease this out for you a little bit. This idea of the fruit that he's talking about. Keep your hand there in John chapter 15 and turn to your right to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, because Peter is going to pick up on the same idea of the fruit-bearing life is a life of godliness. It's a life that is growing in Christ's likeness, that is learning to love what God loves, to submit itself to God's will, to increase in the joy of Christ, 2 Peter chapter 1. We're not going to go through the entire chapter, but you notice there in verse 4, he says that for all of those who've been united to Christ, who've been saved by his grace, they've been saved so that they may become, in verse 4, partakers of the divine nature. That godliness is godlikeness. Then you notice there in verses 5 through 7, he lists qualities of godliness. You can just scan those, various things that, that show and prove that one is growing in grace. But then in verse 8, look at this. He says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. It's the same fruit that Jesus is talking about in John chapter 15. It's the effectiveness, it's the usefulness for God's sake in the world that was lacking in Israel, who is dead in their sin, in spite of all of their outward religiosity, in spite of, in spite of going through the motions outwardly, their hearts were not inclined toward God to love him or to obey him. They were not useful vines. So Peter's asking, well, how then does one become a useful vine? What does that look like? Well, it looks like becoming a partaker in the divine nature. It looks like being useful. It looks like being effective. Specifically, it's a usefulness and an effectiveness that is in Jesus, into verse 8. Specifically, the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go back to John chapter 15. So what then is, he, is this fruit that he's talking about? That he bears fruit, bears more fruit. It's godliness 
that is, in its essence, usefulness for the glory of God in the world. It's that which proves that we are his disciples. In fact, later on in the chapter, we see that this godliness that is exhibited in usefulness for God's sake in the world finds itself rooted in love for others. That's beyond the scope of our teaching this morning. It would be an excellent thing to spend some time meditating on this afternoon. So what is this fruit that he's talking about? It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's godliness. It's godlikeness that we would become partakers of the divine nature. Well, how is it then that we produce the fruit of godliness? How do we become effective? How do we become useful for God's sake in the world? Well, you're going to see the same word pop up 11 times in this passage. You see it? Verse 4, abide, abide, abide. You see it again in verse 5, and in verse 6, and in verse 7, and in verse 8, and in verse 9, and in verse 10. 11 times in this paragraph, in 11 verses, Jesus uses the word abide or remain. Specifically, he says, you are to abide in me. You're to remain in me. He's saying you receive nourishment from me in the way that vines, in the way that branches receive nourishment from the, from the vine. That the vine produces the sap and the substance that gives life to the branches in such a way that they're able to produce good fruit. Branches apart from the vine, he says, well, they don't bear fruit. They're ineffective. They're unfruitful. They're like Israel in the Old Testament, and they're useful only for fuel for the fire. But branches that are connected to the vine, he says, oh, there's life, and there's vitality, there is fruitfulness, and there is joy. You are to abide in me. That's how you grow in fruitfulness and effectiveness. But then there's a third question. How exactly is it that we abide? How do we do that? You say, well, that's really great. You tell me, abide in Christ. And yet that sounds so mystical. What, is, what does that even mean? Where do I begin? What do I do? Is it, is it some mystical experience that I need to be waiting for? Is it that Jono needs to play the songs a little faster? Is it me waiting on a certain fired-up feeling or emotion? Is that what I'm waiting for? Some kind of mystical experience or vision or dream? No, that's not what he's talking about. Well, is it maybe then a white-knuckled hard work that I am going to grind myself to make sure that I am abiding in Christ? Well, no, that's not what he's talking about either because in verse 5 he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so the abiding fuels the doing. Your doing doesn't cause the abiding. And so it begins with grace. We don't work in order to get grace, in order to get God to work for us. We work for God because God has already worked for us in Christ. So it's not by white-knuckled hard work. Well then, well, then how do we do it? How do we abide in Christ? Well, Christ answers it in verses 7 through 11. We abide in Christ through his word. We abide in Christ through his word. And we're going to see this in two different ways. In verses 7 and 8, we see that we have to know God's word. And then in verses 9 and 10, we're going to see that we have to obey God's word. Just look at verses 7 and 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, 
and so prove to be my disciples. I just want you to notice something here. Look up at verse 4. He says here, abide in me and I in you. But then in verse 7 he says, abide in me and my words abide in you. So which is it? Is it Christ abiding in you or is it his word abiding in you? Well, the answer is, is that Jesus abides in you when his word abides in you. There are some out there that look at those who love to teach and preach the Bible, who are concerned with sound doctrine and theology, and they go, oh, no, 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 you just worship the Bible, but I worship Jesus. No, you worship Father, Son, and Holy Bible, but I worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's a false notion because it assumes that the very word of God can be separated from God himself. And what we find throughout the Bible is the exact opposite, that the word of God is, in a sense, the presence of God. That wherever God's word is, God is there. That when God's word is read, when God's word is preached, when God's word is spoken, God is there speaking. And you can no more separate God's word from God than you can separate my words from me. To hear me speak is to know me. For me to hear you to speak is to know you. Not to know you apart from your words. It's to know you according to how you reveal yourself. Much more so with God. So where God is, He is. We see that in creation. We see that at Sinai. You remember when he's speaking to Moses, giving his law. We see that in his incarnate son, crowds gathering around, listening to him speak, interpret the scriptures, and they go, we've never heard anybody teach with this kind of authority. Why is that? It's because it's God speaking. It's through the teaching of the apostles, through the preaching of the word. In fact, John in his epistles later on in the New Testament, he elaborates on this. Is it that we abide in God through Christ, or is it that we abide with God through his word? Is it Christ or his word? Which one is it? Well, 1 John 2.23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So if you want the Father, you've got to have the Son. If you want to abide with the Father, you've got to abide with the Son. A couple chapters later, 1 John 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he is in God. So clearly, to abide in Christ is to abide with God the Father. So how is it that you come then to enjoy union and communion with God? Well, John says in his epistle, it's through the Son. But then he says this, 1 John 4, 6. We are from God. This is John speaking. That we are from God. We've been sent from God as his messengers. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. So which is it? Do you abide with God through the Son, or do you abide with God through the Word? And the answer is both. You cannot separate the one from the other. You cannot have a proper relationship, an abiding relationship with Christ, and have no relationship with His Word. That is to have a Christ different than the one revealed in the Scriptures. The one different than teaches with all authority given to him by the Father. 
That's why our call to worship this morning. You cannot know the Father if you do not know the Son. There is no other God other than the one that has been revealed in the Son. They are one and the same, and His Word is inseparable from Him. And so, doctrine, sound doctrine, as Paul puts it to Titus in Titus chapter 2, sound doctrine isn't a distraction. There's not two kinds of people, those who are into a relationship with God, into relationship with Jesus, and those smarty pants that are into doctrine. You're into doctrine because you're into Jesus. You're into Jesus because you're into truth. He is the way. He is the truth. And so it brings new meaning to the end of Jesus' prayer in John 17 when he prays, Father, sanctify them. That is, make them useful, make them fruitful, make them godly, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So which is it? Your word is truth. I am the way, the truth. Which is the truth? Answer, both. You cannot separate the Son of God from the Word of God. They are intricately tied together. Where we find the Word of God, we find the very presence of God. And this is the first means by which we abide in Christ. That His words abide in us. We say, well, wait a minute. It's just about the Bible. What about prayer? Isn't, isn't prayer a means of communion with Christ? Shouldn't we be praying? Oh, amen. Absolutely. Prayer is essential for communion. But I want you to notice here in verse 7, the conditional language. It begins with the word if. If you abide in me, if my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Think how different this is from James chapter 4. James writes to this church, you don't, you don't have because you, you don't ask. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Well, Jesus says here, that if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So the question then becomes, in light of James 4, you ask but don't receive because you ask wrongly to send it on your passions. How is it that we bring our passions in line with God's will? And the answer is through God's word. You can believe that you are always praying God's will when you are praying God's word. He has already told us his desires for us, about what he wants for us, about his aims for our life, both in giving us good things and in using bad things in our lives for good. In fact, Paul says it explicitly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification, that you would be useful, that you would be effective, and that you would be godly for God's sake in the world your sanctification. So you can believe that you're always praying God's will when you're praying God's word. Jesus has taught us how to pray. He's given a voice and words to our prayer, the Lord's prayer. Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done. Well, how do I know what your will is? The answer is, he's told us. You don't have to make it up. You don't have to figure it out as you go. It's not a casual conversation. God has provided both the grounds by which we approach him and he's provided the very promises that we're to 
repeat back to him and to plead for and to ask for as he would fulfill them in our own lives. But you're always praying God's will when you're praying God's word. Well, do you want to grow in communion with Christ? Do you want to become more fruitful? And you need to know God's word. You say, I've got so little time and, and I'm trying and I'm laboring whenever I can. Well, let me just give you just a little bit of advice. If you're one who's busy like everybody else in here and you're trying to grow in communion with Christ, read fewer books about stuff in the Bible and read more Bible. Be committed to reading and hearing the word privately in your home, jointly in discipleship, one-on-one -on -one in our homes or in coffee shops, in our summer studies, join one of those. And then here on Sundays when we gather corporately, where the word is read and the word is preached, and as we've done together, the word is sung. Twice in the Bible, we're commanded to sing to one another. Why? Well, Paul tells us in the letter Colossians. So that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. How does his word abide in us? Well, one way is that we try to sing the truth of God's word really loudly to one another in such a way that by his spirit it would dwell in us and cause us to grow in fruitfulness. And so have you ever wondered why it is that Matt or Jono just stop playing? Have you ever wondered why it is that we go with mere instrumentation up here sometimes. It's not because we think that that's the latest aesthetic or we're trying to get back to some kind of ancient roots. It's just because we think that's the most effective way to fulfill the principles of God's word, to sing to one another in such a way that it would cause the word of Christ to dwell in us richly and would cause us to bear fruit and to abide with him. I had an old pastor friend of mine at a church that I previously worked at. He would Whenever he came out of his office, he would walk up and down the hall to get water, to go to the restroom, whatever. And whenever he came out of the, his office to do so, he was always singing familiar hymns. Familiar hymns about who God is and about what he's done in his son Jesus, about the benefits of the gospel that we enjoy by faith in Christ. They would walk up and down the hall and we'd hear him through the doors. And nevertheless... He'd go back into his office, and those songs would get stuck in our head the rest of the day. And one time I just asked him, are you just singing all day? Is this what you do, like in your office? He goes, no. When I walk out of my office, I intentionally sing up and down the hall because I want you to listen. Because that's how the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. When you go home, very few of you are going to hum my sermon. But you're going to have... Yet not I, but Christ through me, stuck in your head. And those are glorious truths found in the word that are meant to dwell richly in us in such a way that draw us into deeper communion with Christ. So if you're busy, washing dishes, on your commute, wherever it may be, oh, friends, listen, turn off Netflix and turn on good hymns for background music. Things that are going to build you up in the truth of God's word and that will spur you on to greater effectiveness and fruitfulness in this life. Because we want to abide in him and his words are to abide in us. So you have to know God's word. But verses 9 and 10, you also have to obey God's word. Look at what he says, verse 10. 
If, another conditional statement, you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I've spoken to you, that your joy may, my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Just look at verses 9 and 10. He says here, abide in my love, I abide in his love. To abide in Christ is to abide in the Father. It is to abide in the love that the Father has for the Son. This is a glorious truth about union with Christ. To be united to Christ is to be united to the Father, and that is to be loved by the Father with no less love than he has for his very own Son. That is an infinite for all of eternity before the foundations of the world love. That's how much he loves you when you're in Christ. Well, how do you grow into a, a deeper knowledge and appreciation and an experience of that love? And the answer is not just to know God's word, but to obey God's word. You say, yes, I want to abide in the love of God. Give me more of that. I think we would all say that. Jesus says, well, when you obey me, you abide in me. In fact, if you flip over one page, you see in John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That God is holy, he is pure, he is good, he is fair and just and truthful. He is all of these things and his commands are a reflection of his character. They are who he is. Remember, they can't be separated from him. If you love this God, who is holy and just and right and true, then you will naturally want to be like him. And you can't say, well, I love you, but I'm just not really interested in obeying you or being like you. That betrays the very notion of love. Think about kids with parents. Perhaps there's some children, you go, I wish I had a better relationship with my dad. I give this illustration knowing that that our earthly fathers are not perfect as our heavenly father is. But for the sake of an illustration, I want to have a closer and deeper relationship with my dad. Perhaps some of you look back at your own childhood and you go, I wish I had that. A good question would be, what would God say about you having a, a better relationship with your dad? You'd probably ask, well, do you listen to your father? Or would you respond, well, no, not really. I mean, I think my wisdom is superior to his. I mean, I might go to him anyways, but that's really just to hear what I want to hear. And when I don't do it, when I don't hear what I want to hear, I'm just going to do what I want to do anyways. Do you listen to him? Well, no, not really. Do you obey him? Well, no. I mean, maybe kind of, you know, when I'm in the house, any of you who have been teenagers here, I'm sure you can't relate to this. I mean, I'll nod and give lip service, but when I go out of the house, I'm going to do what I want to do anyways. Do you obey him? What kind of relationship would you have with your father if you never listen to him or obey him? Of course, the inverse is also true. What kind of relationship would you have with your father if you did listen to him and you did obey him? Well, if that's true with our earthly fathers who are far from perfect, how much more is that true with our heavenly father who gives every good and perfect gift? So there are some Christians, perhaps some are in here, who want to abide without obeying. They want an experience of God, or they want the benefits of God, but they just want to make it up as they go. Fruitfulness in the Christian life, effectiveness, 
Godliness comes through communion with Christ. And communion with Christ comes through knowing and obeying his word. And then look at this in verse 11. What is the result then? What's the result, the mark, the characteristic of this fruitful life that is birthed by abiding in Christ through his word? The answer is joy. These things I've spoken to you. Why are you telling us this, Jesus? Here's the purpose. So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let me tell you something that for some of you is really hard to believe. God wants you to have joy. God is not sitting up in heaven thinking about how he might make your life miserable in order to make you holy. God wants you to have joy, but not just any kind of joy. Look at this, verse 10. It's a particular kind of joy. Verse 11, rather. That whose joy may be in you? That my joy would be in you. The kind of joy that you're talking about is not a joy, it's not a temporal joy, it's not a temporal happiness, it's not a happiness that comes with changing circumstances. Oh, if only I could get out of this season into the next, then I'll be happy, then I'll have joy. It is a joy that transcends circumstances. It is a joy rooted in a changeless Savior, not in changing circumstances. It is, Jesus says, my joy. Not a joy apart from me. Not a joy in your circumstances. Not a joy in your earthly relationships. Not a joy in your earthly possessions. If only you had a little bit more, a little bit less, then you would be joyful. It is a joy that is in and out of every season and every circumstance because it's Jesus' joy. That's the joy that God wants for every single man and woman who he has brought by his grace to repent and believe in the gospel. And it's not just merely joy in verse 11. It is a full joy, that his joy may be full. Jesus uses a similar formulation in John chapter 10 that he came to give life to the full. Well, is it, which one is it? Is it life to the full or is it joy to the full? Well, to be united to Christ and to enjoy communion with him is to increase not only in life, but life becomes joy in Christ. That is what the Christian life is all about. And it's ultimately centered in Jesus. That this is ground zero of the Christian life. To have the gospel of Christ's love as our sap and our food. It means being full of Scripture. Because ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. But it means even more than that. Let me take you to one more text and we'll finish up here. John chapter 5. Just go to your left a few pages. John chapter 5. You're saying, okay, Jeff, so all you're saying is I got to know more Bible. Is that what you're saying? I got to know more scripture. Is that it? No, that's not exactly what I'm saying. I'm trying to say the same thing that Jesus is saying in John chapter 5. Begin in verse 37. Read along with me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you've never seen. Question, how do you come to hear the God you've never heard, see the God you've never seen? Answer, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. 
Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of his glory, Hebrews chapter 1. He is the one who makes the invisible God visible. He is the one that makes the inaudible God audible. And he goes on in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them, in the scriptures, you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You can know a lot about the Bible and be dead in your sin. The whole goal of knowing the Bible is not merely to know the Bible. So Jesus here in John chapter 5 is saying to those who diligently study the scriptures, God's word doesn't abide in you because you don't believe the one that the word is pointing to in the first place. The one who's the very source of the word to begin with. All of them bear witness about me. So we don't hear and read and study the Bible to know more of the Bible. We hear and read and study and obey the Bible to know more of Christ. That is how you abide in Christ. To come to His Word looking for more Christ. To be nourished by Christ. To be fed by Christ. To know Him. To walk with Him. To become like Him. That's the whole point of John 15. is communion with Christ through His Word. Well, I'm going to wrap up with a quote from one of my favorite theologians, Michael Reeves. And I can't say it any better than he does, and he's commentating here on John 15, on this image of being the true vine and the father of the vine dresser. He says this, it boggles the mind just how much work that simple image does. Here it is, John 15, he says. Our union and our communion with Christ. One, in vital, closest union. No distance. The vine holds nothing back from its branches, pouring all of its life into them. And it makes the nature of the Christian life so easy to see. There can be no life or true fruitfulness apart from Him. On our own, we are but withered sticks. And that knocks the wind out of you if you like to think of yourself as strong and capable. He continues, For what can all of your brilliance, determination, and oomph achieve? Precisely nothing. Or nothing positive apart from Him. It means we do not try to produce fruit in order to join the vine or to stay in it, we bear fruit when we receive the life of the vine. Our part is to remain there. Then the fertile sap of the Spirit will flow through us, producing fruit. Joy in the Christian life grows as we grow in holiness, godliness, usefulness, effectiveness. And all of that grows as we grow in communion with Christ. Let's pray together.